Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Every, I was just about to say every Thursday, but I know that we switched this week uh, to accommodate someone very special, our special guest. For those who are sitting here, you know who it is. And for those tuning in to Progressive Voices, you'll, you'll know very soon. Um, but we moved the programming to today, Friday, but every week here at the Commonwealth Club, we tape for Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper, at the Commonwealth Club. And the show is all about having an intersectional approach to social justice conversations inclusive of the LGBTQ community. So welcome. Our guest today, we can call him our very own because <laughs> we're here in San Francisco, but he has served as board of supervisor here in San Francisco before being elected to state senator. Let's welcome state senator Scott Weiner. Hi, Senator. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, we, I'm excited to have you. I think the last time we chatted was basically, you know, during the time that you were campaigning for the position that you're in now. You know, you've been on the show before, you know the drill, and we do it here all the time. It, when we start the show, we always ask a coming out story. You've told your coming out story many times here on the program. But um, as you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, you have coming out stories throughout the entire time you've been out. Want to share with us one that maybe <clears throat> we haven't heard? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I, I came out when I was, uh, I was 20 in, in 1990 and, uh, you know, like most of us, uh, we, you know, start out, well, some people do it in a splashy way, but I had, uh, you know, told, uh, my, uh, friends and some of my family members and, but I was a, uh, junior in college and I, uh, was a member of a fraternity and I had, uh, said to myself, you know, I'm never going to tell my fraternity brothers because there's no way they would ever accept it. And so I sort of decided I wasn't going to tell them. But then, you know, as uh, as happens, once you start telling people, it sort of snowballs and you want to tell more and more people, which is a good thing. And uh, and so I, I came out at uh, <clears throat> our fraternity meetings. At the end, we would have all stand in a circle and everyone got to say whatever they wanted to say just to end the meeting. Uh, and so when it came to me, I, I came out to all of my fraternity brothers in one fell swoop, and uh, they completely uh, embraced me and, and elected me president of the fraternity <laughs> a, few, a few months after that. Uh, and so uh, it was one of those affirming experiences. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. John. I love how that immediately went to, okay, he's gay, good. He can organize everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a clipboard. Yes. Um, well, you became president, and at some point, then you came out here. Yeah. Um, and uh, how quickly did you get involved in politics? Well, I, I um, have been on again, off again involved in politics since I was a, a teenager. Uh, when I started interning for my congressman and then volunteering on campaigns. And so I came out to San Francisco in 1997, uh, and I uh, had uh, said to myself I was, was going to stop doing politics uh, that I was done with politics and was going to focus, in addition to my work as a lawyer, on uh, community work. And so I got involved uh, with the LGBT Community Center, which didn't exist at the time. We were trying to raise money for it to build it. Uh, and that's how I uh, met Mark Leno, who at the time was not in any elected office. And uh, he was uh, the head of the capital campaign for the center. And so got involved, and, and then he got appointed to the Board of Supervisors, and that sort of pulled me back into politics. I volunteered on his campaigns, and it sort of snowballed from there. So I, at one point I uh, decided, you know, I keep getting pulled back in, so it was meant to be. You were elected to the state senator seat the same you know, term as we were electing a president. Um, I have wanted to ask you this and seeing you just in action, by the way, in the last two years. And, and gosh, John and I were talking about this incredible number of bills that you've been so successful in pushing forward. And, and I know that the, the big bill everybody wants to hear you talk about is SB 50 and we'll get there. But what I wanted to ask you was really kind of what were you doing and what were you thinking and feeling um, at the time? And not to bring you all the way back there, but when you found out that the current president is <laughs> the president. Yeah. Um, well, that night was interesting. It's uh, as one of my uh, friends 
said to me, it's a little bit like uh, having your birthday on 9-11. Like, should I be ecstatic? Should I be crying? What should I be uh, doing? And it was, you know, I, I was in a very, very uh, close, uh, hotly contested uh, state Senate race. And, um, and I still remember at, uh, I was campaigning at church and market until about 7.50, because at some point it's too late to get anyone to the polls before they close at 8. So at about 7.50, I was with a few volunteers, and we just you know stopped, and that was it. And we started walking out Market Street to go back to my campaign headquarters in the, uh, in the Castro before going to the, our election night party um, at a bar in the Castro. And as I'm walking up Market Street, I had not been focused on what was happening in the presidential that day because I was focused on our own race. And, um, and I'm walking down the street and all the bars that we walked by, all the gay bars, there were, um, they were packed and then there were pe- people packed on the sidewalk looking in. And one of them I went up to and I, and I look in and the TV is on. It's showing, I think it was like that Trump had won Pennsylvania or some other key state. And, and people, it was starting to really dawn on people that uh, the unthinkable had, uh, had happened. Uh, and so I uh, went back to my campaign headquarters and uh, just everyone, people were crying. Uh, you know, and we hadn't gotten any results yet in our race, but people were just in tears that so this was happening to our country and to our community. Uh, and then we went to the bar for the election night party and the initial returns came in and it you know, showed that we were um, significantly ahead and things were looking good. And uh, there were a lot of people who didn't come to the election night party who were texting me saying, you know, congratulations, I'm so sorry I can't be there, but I, 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 I'm in bed and I can't get out of bed. Oh and my goodness. It was just a really, um, one of the most bizarre evenings I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. Uh, two years into the presidency, the same as you expected, better, worse. What do you think? Um, uh, it's definitely. I think I I I expected everything to be so horrible that I don't know that it could be worse than expectations. But I think when the reality starts to set in, and you see the actual tangible results of what um, what this monster has been doing to our country, it's it. it there's no way you can ever. You can you can intellectually anticipate that, but you can't sort of emotionally anticipate you know what it means when he starts putting you know very radical people onto the Supreme Court or um, what actually you know the constant demonization of immigrants what what that actually means as it happens over time um, or you know the you know of course we all knew he was lying during the campaign when he said that he was going to be an ally to the LGBT community. Um, but even though we knew he was lying, I, there's always hope springs eternal that maybe there was that one-tenth of a percent chance that he wasn't. But then, of course, he was lying, and then everything he's done to our community. Uh, and, you know, just the, you know, the fall back, falling back on climate change and withdrawing from the Paris Accords and trying to stop California from having our own auto emission standards. It's just one thing after another. Uh, so I think it is, you know, even though we knew it was going to be really bad, it's, it is even worse um, than we thought. And uh, it's just a real tragedy. On the other hand, um, the good part is that the pushback has been so intense, both at a grassroots level and amongst, from states and, you know, with the take, taking back uh, the house, uh, it, you know, that, that's been reassuring that he is doing real lasting damage, but we stopped him from doing uh, some of the terrible things he's wanted to do. I just want to jump in before Michelle gets in again. When we're talking about uh, not necessarily hashtag the resistance, but resistance to this administration's policies, where do you think most effective means have been? Has it been in all the court cases that have held up a number of executive uh, committee, uh, whatever they're called, executive orders, thank you. Um, or has it been, you know, state laws and that have been filed? I think it's been sort of all of the above. I mean, the litigation is very important. I think California has now filed pushing. I think we're about to exceed the number of lawsuits that Texas filed against the Obama administration. <laughs> so we're, we're doing pretty well, but, um, uh, 
So the litigation is very important because this is a this is a president, and unfortunately, he's dragged the entire National Republican Party with him that no longer, they don't believe in the rule of law. I mean, you, you think about, like, Republicans always say, we're the law and order um, you know, party, and, and, and we think it's probably law and order in a, in a bad way because it leads to mass incarceration and all that. But they're like, we're, we're the law and order party, but then they have a leader who has dragged them into... Um, lawlessness, where they, they don't believe in the rule of law anymore. Uh, and so having the courts hold them accountable is important. And of course, he has been very effective at um, appointing judges. So he is gradually starting to change the federal judiciary, but there's still many, many judges, including Republican appointees who are enforcing the law. And by the way, this is just another example. I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Barack Obama, but you know the Obama administration this is, this is where Democrats sometimes fall short. We had super majorities in, uh, or majorities uh, in, uh, actually super majorities in both houses of Congress for the first two years of the Obama administration. They should have been just pushing through, filling every vacancy in the federal judiciary. And instead they, um, they were slow, they were not nimble. And so, and then the Republicans took over and that was the end of our ability to reshape the federal judiciary. Trump, by contrast, they've, and Mitch McConnell, they've just rammed through so many judges, including very incompetent and un, you know, unqualified judges. So we need to um, learn from the Republicans, not on the issues, but in terms of how you exercise power, because the Democrats have often been very, very bad at actually exercising power to achieve our goals. We're too cautious and timid sometimes. Um, but the, so the lawsuits are important. Um, the state pushback is important, and California has been in the lead on that because we are so large and we have super majorities in both houses of the legislature, and we passed a number of aggressive laws uh, to push back. Uh, and then, of course, on moral leadership, and Jerry Brown was very good at this, Gavin Newsom uh, is. But then at a grassroots level, it's just really, um, we saw the wave that happened in Congress this year and picking up seats that no one thought we could pick up. Yes, some of that is just the national dynamic, but it was also just armies of volunteers. I was out in the Central Valley um, trying to help uh, a new colleague of mine, Ana Caballero, get elected to the state Senate, and we were out uh, near uh, Merced uh, canvassing, uh, and um, there were so many Bay Area people canvassing for Josh Harder at the same time, and so we really have just mobilized on the grassroots level, which is powerful. I'd love to hear, you know, kind of uh, what your experience has been moving from, you know, focusing on San Francisco and now your focus is the entire state in, in doing this work during this politically challenging time and how you're, what might have been different from, you know, what you were doing here in San Francisco from a microscopic level to now looking at it from the state side yeah. and trying to pass bills and stuff. How have we been impacted? How has that impacted you? How has that changed the way that you yeah. lead as an elected leader? Um, it is very different. I mean, I loved um, being on the board of supervisors and you know representing my, you know my neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods uh, and and local government. There's nothing quite as uh, tangible as being in local government. You are working hand in glove with your constituents every day. It's constant interaction. Um, you have your finger on the pulse, unlike anyone else on the planet. You know in local elected office everything that's happening because everyone's coming to you with everything, and it can be intense, um, but you really know what people are thinking. Uh, and it's very tangible in getting things done, right? You're, you're, you're just really tangibly improving things, hopefully improving things in your community. Um, but going to the state level, it's really, uh, and in California, I mean, it's such a huge state. Every state Senate district is about a million people. So you're representing a lot of people, uh, and you're helping make decisions for the fifth largest economy in the world uh, for 40 million people. Uh, and, and so, of course, I try to stay very engaged locally, um, but the, the work we're doing does impact the whole state. So I feel an obligation... Uh, not just to look inward in terms of San Francisco and San Mateo County, but to understand what's happening around the state. And so I you know, spend time um, regularly in Southern California or in the Central Valley, um, been up you know, to Eureka, just try to um, 
be present, especially with the housing work that we're doing, because that has impacts around the state, I feel an obligation that, you know, I was just uh, invited by a coalition of neighborhood groups in LA to come to a forum that they're having on housing. And so I'm going to, you know, head down to LA to, to do that. I feel like I owe it to them to be present and to have that direct dialogue. In addition, the LGBT-related work that we do, I do aggressive LGBT civil rights wor uh, work, and I chair uh, the Legislative LGBT Caucus. Um, that means, you know, I get, I've just got invited by a, um, a school that's doing a big LGBT-related uh, um, school event for their entire school community up in Sonoma County, uh, and I'm going to go to that. Or I went to the Fresno Pride parade last year. It was a grand marshal because I feel an obligation as, now as a statewide LGBT leader to, you know, I want to be there and support our community members throughout the state. So it's a lot. It means a lot more travel um, and, and, and it can be exhausting, but I find it um, really exhilarating and, and energizing. Well, he brought up housing. So, John, I'm guessing your next question is going to dive right into it. When I, when I was in middle school, high school, my friends would occasionally think, oh, you know, you might become a politician when you grow up. And I have always been interested in politics, but I learned early on, no way, I've got way too thin of a skin because vicious attacks really take place. So you know where I'm going with this. Um, I got a flyer, I'm sure just about everyone in the room probably did. I don't know if this was sent out statewide or just to the Bay Area. Just in San Francisco. Okay, lucky us. Um, <laughs> Tell us a bit, and you've already talked about this, of course, but lay the groundwork for the group that, that sent out this flyer, and what do we know more about this group? Because it, yeah. they're very, very active. Yeah, and there's more coming. Um, so this is a group called the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. It's a Los Angeles-based group, uh, and its CEO is a man by the name of Michael Weinstein. Uh, and it's very unfortunate because people see the name and they see AIDS and they see foundation, they see healthcare, and they think, oh, this is just some HIV uh, group. It must be a good thing. It's not. Uh, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, AHF, its acronym, um, is uh, sort of a pariah uh, organization within the HIV community. Other HIV organizations here locally in San Francisco around the country can't stand them. Uh, and uh, AHF, even though it is registered as a nonprofit um, with the state of California, my view is it's, it's a, uh, I refer to it as a fake nonprofit or a nonprofit technically legally, um, but it's really um, a huge national chain pharmacy and insurance company that registers as a nonprofit uh, over a billion dollar budget. Uh, and they make their money from their chain pharmacy um, through there's a federal program where nonprofit community clinics uh, are able to get purchase phar pharmaceuticals at a discount. And then they when they bill it to Medi-Cal or to private insurance, they do it at a markup. And, mo you know, most clinics like a Planned Parenthood um, will then use that markup profit to reinvest in their clinic. It's a way of helping these community clinics. Um, its healthcare foundation does this on steroids because they're a chain pharmacy and they make huge amounts of money from this federal program. I think it's an abuse. Um, and then they use a portion of that money to do politics. Mm -hmm. And so they spend, um, I, I think I've heard about 30, $40 million a year doing politics. Uh, and some of those uh, politics, it's sort of questionable why an HIV nonprofit is doing, for example, uh, they authored uh, Measure S in Los Angeles a couple years ago, which would have basically ended uh, housing development in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, everyone opposed it. The affordable housing groups opposed it. Labor opposed it. Business community, like across the board, and they defeated it. But he put millions of HIV healthcare dollars into a measure to try to shut down development in LA. Uh, they sponsored the statewide uh, uh, ballot measure to mandate condoms in adult films, uh, which is universally opposed by pub public health organizations, um, HIV organizations, because that's not how you actually prevent HIV. Uh, it just simply pushes the industry underground or out of state. Uh, and we defeated that as well. But he spent millions of dollars of HIV healthcare dollars to try to pass that. Um, the reason they don't like me is when I was on the Board of Supervisors, uh, this uh, AHF, this national essentially chain pharmacy, tried to put a major pharmacy and clinic on Castro Street. No one wanted it. 
all the local, the local HIV groups, local activists, neighborhood groups all opposed it. They tried to scam our uh, planning rules so that they wouldn't have to go to the planning commission because they knew they would lose there. Uh, and I, uh, I stopped it and we were able to stop the project. So they sued me um, when I ran for the state senate. They, um, uh, I, I believe, illegally spent about a half a million dollars attacking me in the state senate race with some very, very repulsive um, flyers that they mailed out um, using their condoms and porn ballot measure money to attack me, which is illegal. Nonprofits are not allowed to engage in electioneering for or against candidates. It's illegal. Uh, so they did that. And then I got into office. They're now um, the statewide, I'm calling the NIMBY in chief. They fund organizations um, that are trying to just stop any kind of growth. And so they hate the fact that I'm doing pro-housing legislation. Uh, they, uh, they try to organize protests of me. Um, we've talked to some of the people in those protests to ask them why they're protesting, and they've typically told us they don't know. They're just there. And so read into that what you will. Um, and, and so now um, they've decided to just try to undermine me in the district I represent. So they're, they have cable TV ads running in San Francisco and Sacramento. Um, and then this first mailer that they sent out in San Francisco um, was uh, uh, comparing the legislation I'm offering or authoring to quote unquote, and I'm quoting the flyer, uh, Negro removal, um, quoting uh, James Baldwin uh, um, about redevelopment back in the day where entire neighborhoods in San Francisco were being bulldozed, uh, even though this bill has strict anti-demolition protections in it. Uh, and it was a very offensive uh, mailer, and um, the African-American leadership in San Francisco uh, was um, very vocal condemning it. Uh, and we, we held a press conference uh, earlier this week uh, in which the head of the San Francisco chapter of the NAACP and other very prominent African-American community leaders condemned it. Mayor Breed uh, condemned it. Um, so it was pretty despicable. But they're not going to stop. Uh, th this guy, Michael Weinstein, um, is... I think an egomaniac. Uh, they also, um, they're opposed uh, to PrEP, mm -hmm. uh, which is the most powerful anti-HIV preventative in existence, a once a day pill that almost entirely eliminates the risk of HIV infection. Uh, and this huge supposedly HIV organization uh, runs marketing campaigns to persuade people not to go on the PrEP. So these guys are bad actors. Yeah, seriously. Well, moving away from the ugliness of politics and talking about housing. I mean, I think most of us as residents is, you know, of, of California, uh, you talked about this before even being elected to your current position. We talked about ho homelessness and housing, and I think it goes somewhat hand in hand, but you mentioned it being a statewide problem and that we needed to, if we were going to pr have any solutions, we needed to think about it holistically in that way. Um, so SB 50 without, you know, people who are pro or against, let's just understand what it is sure. that we're proposing and how this could really impact and create more housing for everyone yeah. here in California. Yeah, so um, just the, if we look at the magnitude of the problem in California, it is, it's easy to become demoralized, which we shouldn't because we know how to solve it um, over time. Nothing happens overnight. This is a problem that's going to frankly take decades to solve because it's taken us decades to dig ourselves into the hole. But um, there have been several analysis done of what is the housing shortage in California. How many homes are we short in California? Uh, and uh, we are um, short 3.5 million homes in California. And the only critique I've heard of that number is some people say, no, it's not 3.5 million homes, it's 2.5 million homes. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's huge either way. So 3.5 million home housing deficit in California. And in context, uh, the other 49 states combined have a housing deficit of 3.5 million homes. So we have, California has one half of the entire national housing deficit just in one state. Um, we rank 49 out of 50 states in homes per capita. Just comparing homes, number of homes to number of people, what's that ratio? We are number 49 out of 50. The only state that's lower is Utah, which has very large household sizes, so they need fewer homes. Um, so we're basically at the bottom. Uh, and um, if you look at housing production in California, back in the early 1960s, 
when we were a state of 15 million people, we built 250 to 320,000 homes per year um, for a state of 15 million people. We're now a state of 40 million people, and we're building 80 to 100,000 homes per year. So we have almost tripled in size, but our housing production has gone down by about two-thirds. Uh, and so the reason is that the housing system, the policy structure for building housing in California was created in the 1960s and 1970s when we were a state that was dramatically smaller. And we sort of decided, let's deprioritize housing production. This is what we did in the 60s and 70s. We did it in a few ways. We started putting approval layers in place, making it very hard to approve housing. We did it um, by some interpretations of CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, making it really easy for people to oppose and block housing. Uh, cities did it by uh, putting really lengthy approval processes in place where it could take two, three, four, five, ten years to approve uh, housing, including low-income housing. Uh, and we did it by um, uh, zoning. And, and zoning is a very technical thing, but zoning is basically, in, in layperson's term, it is what housing is legal or illegal to build. And what we, we used to build apartment buildings all over California, all over San Francisco, all over the Bay Area, everywhere you'd see apartment buildings. Uh, and then in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, uh, in San Francisco, Bay Area, all through California, we started banning apartment buildings. And we did that through what we call single-family home zoning. And single-family home zoning is a technical way of saying that it is illegal to build any kind of housing other than single-family homes. So all you can do on one parcel is put a unit of housing for one family, period. And so we're to the point where 80% of the land in California, uh, of the residentially zoned land, is single-family, so an 80% of land in California, you could only build single family home. You can't even build a three or four unit small apartment building. And what that has done, it, and again, it didn't used to be that way. It became that way mostly in the 70s into the 80s. San Francisco down zone in the 70s, LA did it in 1985 when LA eliminated, just deleted 50% of its zoned housing capacity. And so what that means is you can build far fewer homes it just, you know, you can have all the money for affordable housing in the world. You can have a really fast approval process. You can have all the construction labor that you need. But if the zoning says you can't build the housing, then you're out of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, what, uh, so as we zoned for less and less housing, our housing production went off the cliff. And the, what it also means is that we made it really hard for people to live near where the jobs are. So in San Francisco, 70% of the land is, is zoned only for single family or two units. You can't even build a three, four, or six unit building. It's illegal. Um, in LA, it's 70%. So, we're, we're, so exactly Palo Alto, it's almost impossible to build multi-unit anywhere. Cupertino, same thing. So exactly where you need the housing because the jobs there the, are there, the transit is there, we have said we're making it illegal to build enough housing. So SB 50 is designed to address that problem. And what the bill says is that if you are near quality public transportation or you are in a job-rich area, you can't ban apartment buildings. You have to allow some level of density. Uh, and by apartment buildings, it's not just market rate, it's also affordable housing for low-income people. Because if you say only single-family homes, you are banning affordable housing because no one builds affordable housing as single-family homes. It's always multi-unit. So you're effectively banning poor people from your community. And in fact, when single-family home Restrictive zoning was invented. It was invented 100 years ago, the year after the Supreme Court struck down racial zoning. And it is a way to exclude people from your community. So SB 50 will say we're going to allow these small to mid-sized apartment buildings near jobs, near transit. We're gonna, we, it has an affordability requirement in it, uh, depending on the size of the um, project. It's somewhere between 15 and 25% affordability. If the local affordability is higher, then that applies. Local design standards apply, local demolition protections apply, a lot of local rules will still apply. And the bill has very strong uh, tenant protection uh, in it. If a tenant has resided on the property in the last seven years, uh, you can't 
get a demolition permit to build a new project. If there's been an Ellis Act eviction in the last 15 years, it's not, you can't use the property for this bill. So we worked those out with tenant advocates. And so this is a bill that will lead to a lot more housing, including affordable housing, and will protect existing residents from displacement. I, I think there are um, a lot of let's just say the folks who are reading into SB 50 and they are vulnerable families, vulnerable of gentrification. And they're concerned about this bill that it would attract, you know, high skilled level workers and big in big urban cities like San Francisco, for example, those who would, who would earn a whole lot more than driving up costs of living. And so, you could hear their fears that they're, they're just not going to think about this logically, but coming from the, their emotions of how may the, building these tall dense or uh, uh, buildings and apartment uh, buildings and bringing in new residents will drive me out. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't blame them mm. for having that fear because there has been so much gentrification and displacement uh, in not just San Francisco, but, you know, all over. And LA is going through really huge problems right now. It's happening all over the state. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, frankly, that gentrification and displacement started during the years and years that we weren't building much housing at all. It's only very recently that we've really ramped up housing production. Uh, and so it's just to be, you know, clearly, for example, the mission, the mission, which has gone through decades of displacement and gentrification over periods when very little housing was being built in the mission. So, you know, that you, it's not the construction of new housing that drives displacement, it's scarcity of housing. So housing costs explode and landlords have an incentive to try to push people out and get higher income people in, which is why it's so important to have tenant protections. Um, but with that said, we were, were very sensitive to that. And I don't, the, the goal of SB 50 is to add new housing, not to replace existing residents. That is our goal. And so we've built in a number of provisions to achieve that. And I'm not, you know, nothing is airtight, nothing is perfect, um, but we've built in protections. Number one, uh, as I mentioned, we have these strong anti-demolition eviction protections built into the bill. Uh, they're the strongest that exist under state law. Uh, and we don't, you know, and, and I'm glad about that. We've gotten criticized that we, some people think we went too far. And I don't think we went too far. I think we have strong protections. We also um, have a uh, provision for so-called sensitive communities, which are areas that are, have a significant percentage of low-income residents, uh, risk of displacement. <clears throat> they will get a five-year delay in implementation of the bill uh, in order to do local anti-displacement planning. And when they come out of those five years, um, they will be able to have modified versions of it so they can uh, do it so they'll still achieve the same level of housing, but do it in their own way. So we've given these lower income communities uh, both a, a significant delay and more flexibility. Um, on, on top of that, it's important to know that while this is not true everywhere, um, disproportionately, Low-income neighborhoods today are, are more likely to already have housing density. Think the Tenderloin, Chinatown, the Mission, uh, you know, other parts of the state too. It's not everywhere. There are low-income communities in South LA or parts of Oakland that are zoned single family. Uh, but generally, low-income communities are more likely to be zoned for density. And so when you look at Tenderloin, Chinatown, Mission, these neighborhoods will be minimally impacted or not at all by SB 50 because they're already zoned mm -hmm. for height and for density. So the bill will have little or no impact. The neighborhoods that, these, that this bill will impact the most are wealthier neighborhoods. And that's why you know, the, the, some of the most vocal critics of this bill are the mayor of Palo Alto, the mayor of Los Altos, the mayor of Menlo Park, the mayor of Cupertino, the mayor of Beverly Hills, some of the wealthiest communities in California are the most ardent critics of this bill. Marin County, right? They are fighting because they're for low density areas are disproportionately wealthier, not all, but disproportionately, and they don't want to see apartment buildings, the west side of San Francisco. So, uh, so I think in the end, this bill is going to um, ha bring more equity to our housing policy. So instead of putting density only in low income communities, we're going to spread that density out to also include wealthier communities. Mm -hmm.
John? Um, well, it's fun. I recently wrote something about NIMBYs and LIMBYs and YIMBYs because um, there's a project, uh, not a project, but a development that's going to happen literally in my backyard. It's a Habitat for Humanity project that'll be, I think, six or eight families, and I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I, I lived in HUD housing for a while as a kid. It's like, yeah, that was really important. There's no way my mother with four young kids could have afforded to, you know, buy a single family home or something. Um, but there, some of the response I got from that is just, I'm sure, just a, a trickle of the stuff you get thrown at you on this. But it, it was a lot of um, reaction to, if they're not going after the, you know, fears of displacement, it's often my city's changing, you know, my neighborhood's different. I don't want to live in Manhattan, that kind of stuff. Oh. Um, to be honest, my response tends to be, well, cities change. But that's not necessarily a great political thing to say <laughs> to people who are already very emotional about it. But, I mean, is, is there, is there a, a, a way to assuage them, or is it simply this is going to have to happen? And Yeah, and I'm glad that Habitat for Humanity is doing that, and Habitat for Humanity is supporting SB50 along with um, many, many nonprofit affordable housing uh, developers and nonprofits that build low-income housing. They are many of them are supporting SB50 because SB50 will create many more available parcels for affordable housing by upzoning to more density. Um, and, you know, the, one of the underlying themes of the opposition to this bill or the concerns, whether in low-income communities or wealthier communities, is the fear of change. And in low-income communities, that fear tends to be, I'm going to get kicked out of my own community, which I, I'm very sympathetic to that fear. In wealthier um, communities, it, it tends to be more, uh, I, you know, bought my home, be, you know, wanting to live in a suburban single family home neighborhood. I don't want apartment buildings. I don't, there's going to be problems with parking or traffic or more, uh, my kid's class size is going to get too big. And, you know, concerns, which I get it. Like when you talk about traffic, your kid's classroom parking, these are all issues that are daily issues in people's life. So I don't, criticize people for having the concern. Um, but in terms of change and fear of change, I think it's really important for when we talk about like neighborhood character, um, that neighborhood character is not just about the physical look of the neighborhood and how tall the buildings are or where the sunlight hits the ground or whatever. Neighborhood character is also about the people who live in a neighborhood. And if you have a neighborhood that is frozen in amber, so everything looks exactly the same as it did 30 years ago, but as a result, the rents have doubled and now artists and working class people have left because they can't afford to live there and kids can't afford or young people can't afford to move in or can't afford to stay or kids come, can't come back from college and live in the town they grew up in unless they live in their parents' basement. The character of your neighborhood is going to change in a very fundamental way. And you're gonna become more homogenous and it's just not good. And so, you know, when I look, I live in the Castro, I've lived there for 22 years, and the character of the Castro physically, other than on Market Street, is pretty much the same as when I moved there. Once you, other than some, a few taller buildings going up on Market Street, the Castro is overwhelmingly the same physically as when I moved there in 1997. But it's not the same in terms of the people, because so many you know, LGBT people in particular have left. There's still many who are there. It's still a very LGBT-intensive neighborhood. But so many people have left because they can't afford it. And we struggle. You know, the Castro's always had waves of young people who have come there. And they still come. But there are, it's not on the same level as before. And so we have to look at that broader definition of neighborhood character. Well, I would say, I mean, you know, the folks who enjoyed nudity in the Castro are not there anymore, Scott. <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would actually have to partially disagree with that. You're right. I did because they, they, the they are still there. They just put, all they have to do is put a sock over it and they can show their butt. Women can show their breasts. So I, I that is my, that nudity law it's a you know it's a pretty it's a pretty narrow law. So oh. the naked guys are still there. <laughs> now I know. Now I understand the sock thing. I thought that that was just because it gets nippy or something. No, no, no. That's all they have to do, and it's a very, they're very creative <laughs> socks. I don't know if they make those socks themselves. They're really like beautifully decorated socks. <laughs> There's a business opportunity there yeah. for some some entrepreneur. Oh yeah, that's gonna be my new job tomorrow. 
Well, it's now time that we open up questions to our audience for our state senator, Scott Wiener. So if you've got a question, ask on this roving mic that John's passing um, around. Hi. So my name's Lynn, and I live in Oakland. And I was I just really like the, the directness with which you've spoken about this, because I, I live in a, an, an area in Temescal, which is already gentrifying. And so we're, we're already seeing the really huge apartment complexes. And I think we have to. I, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that that's happening. It's a good thing. It's going to bring people in, hopefully provide homes. I don't like seeing homeless people. I don't like knowing that there are people that don't have a place to go. And I, I, it doesn't it wouldn't feel right to be in a neighborhood whose character was such that we weren't helping with that. But I do understand the question that I don't know the answer to is lots of questions. But so you've got an established neighborhood where single family homes and it's pretty much all full, filled up. Where do you get the land to do the the, den, the more dense units, even yeah. if it's just four or six units right. or bigger? Well, it's been, that's a really important point, too, because um, when we have this debate of whether it's this bill or, or similar, you know, other aggressive housing bills, I think sometimes people, even though when they think about it, they know this isn't true. I think sometimes people in the back of their head, they, the, the way they talk, it's almost as if, okay, the governor signs the bill and the law, and tomorrow all these big apartment buildings descend out of the sky in the people's neighborhoods. And overnight, your neighborhood is radically changed. And that, of course, is not how development works. Even under the best of circumstances, when you're talking about not, not you know, empty land, we're talking about established communities, even under the best of circumstances, development takes a long time. You have to have an available parcel. You have to have a developer, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, who has funding. You have to go through the, you know, the process of approval. You have to you know, then go and build it. And so the, the change that will happen in neighborhoods will be very gradual and over time. And, and so it's not like people are going to notice some big change in our neighborhood you know, in a year or in two years. It's going to take years and, frankly, decades. And precisely because you do need to have an available parcel. And there are, you know, in places like San Francisco and Oakland, there are plenty of available parcels. Um, but it may also be that, you know, uh, it, you know maybe a, a home burns down, right, or, or is red tagged for some reason. Or maybe when, in the next earthquake, if there are a bunch of buildings that are destroyed, then when they rebuild, they would have the option of rebuilding, you know, like a six-unit building instead of a single-family home. It could happen in a lot of um, ways. But the other piece of this bill, and this the bill was amended this week, and one of the things that we put in there, um, and that we made this statewide, is to say you can build any, around transit and job. It'll be more density, but elsewhere we'll do very light density in the form of what we call a fourplex, which is up to four units. Uh, and what we said was you can't tear down single-family homes to do that, but you can subdivide internally. So let's say someone has a 2,000-square-foot or 1,500-square-foot single-family home. They may decide, I'm going to turn this into two units. I'm just going to you know, re internally reconstruct it uh, to turn it into two units, a, a duplex or maybe a triplex, depending on the size, instead of one home. And so you can do that without demolishing it, but you're doing it internally. And we already have that happening in the form of overcrowding where you have, you know, multiple families living in one home. Now we can actually turn it into a few units within the same uh, building. So it can happen in a few different ways. Yeah. Any other? Uh, thanks for your work on this issue, and thanks for your persistence on it. Also, I know you know these things take a long time, and I appreciate you keep working at it. Um, I, as I talk to people about these issues, sometimes I hear pushback about various things. I'm curious to get your take on a couple things. Maybe you can help me respond to people, or mm -hmm. just hear your thoughts on it. Um, I hear some people ask, you know, what about foreign investment? At least in San Francisco, like, do we need more houses, or are there just vacant spaces sitting here that we can open up and we can get housing that way? I also hear people sometimes say, oh, this is all about real estate developers and this benefits them and they donate, you know, and this is kind of thing. So I'm curious. Yeah. Well, in terms of foreign investment, I, I, I frankly, you know, it, it doesn't matter as much who owns it. I mean, if, if, as long as it's being rented out. So whether it's an investor from, you know, from China or from France who owns it or, or whether it's, uh, you know, the family down the street 
that owns it. And we can't, you know, I mean, I guess the U.S. could go in the direction of not allowing foreign ownership of real estate. You know, Mexico, I know, has restrictions, at least along the coast on that. Um, but uh, th that's not the direction we've ever gone in before. But I, to me, it's more about just making sure these units are getting rented out. Um, there is talk about um, putting a vacancy tax on uh, empty units. I know Vancouver has tried that. It's unclear if it's worked. I've heard mixed results about it, and it's an idea I'm open to if it will work. I, don't, I wouldn't want to do it for just for the sake of, of doing it. Um, there, there's been, a, for as long as I've been involved in San Francisco, there's been, a, before the foreign investment issue came up, there was always a debate about, oh my God, how many vacant units are there in San Francisco? And I think some of the uh, uh, landlord groups would say, um, well, there are vacant groups because of, or vacant units because of rent control. Landlords don't want to rent out because it's now a lifetime relationship. And then tenant groups would say, no, uh, that's not. So it was all this eternal debate. Was it 5,000 units or 20,000 units? Um, we, there was an analysis that Spur did uh, maybe three, four years ago or five years ago uh, that showed it was, I think, at the low end of what people thought that the, the vacancy problem, it's, it's there, it's a real thing, but it's not as massive as people think. And that even if we got all those units on the market, it would be a good thing, but it would not be um, a game changer. And then in terms of, the, yeah, yeah, we do hear this narrative, oh, if you build more, building more housing, this is just about benefiting developers. Um, and, you know, and then I get beaten up saying, oh my God, there are developers who have donated to your campaign, so that's why you're doing this. Honestly, like, no offense to developers, I could care less <laughs> if developers are making money or not. What I care about is making sure that someone is building housing for people to live in. Mm -hmm. And if you go around and all of those friends or people who say that to you, you should ask every one of them, who built your house or your apartment? Who built it? Did, did, did someone just, did, did like dad go out, you know, and, and get, or mom and get their toolbox out and build it? I'm sure maybe once in a blue moon someone did that. A developer built that. Then maybe a developer built it in 1920 or in 1970 or in 2017. But I can guarantee that for every person who says that to you, they are living in an apartment or a home that, or in a home that a developer built at some point. And that developer, guess what? I'll bet made money because developer is not going to build a home out of charity. Nonprofit builders do, yes. But for people who, do, who are not in subsidized low-income housing, which is the vast majority even of low-income people, that a developer built that home. So this idea that uh, we shouldn't try to push for more housing because, God forbid, a developer might make money on it is a completely, I'm going to be blunt, a specious argument. Um, yes, we want to make sure that we have good affordability rules so that they, a percentage have to be affordable to low-income people. Yes, we want to make sure that we're not building only, you know, the most luxurious, like, you know, NEMA, that's a great project, you know, NEMA, that lug, the truly luxury housing, but that, fine, but, you know, we don't want everything to be like that. We want to, you know, and most of the housing that's being built, even though it's expensive, and so is 100-year-old housing. It's all expensive. Most of it's not luxury. It's just regular housing that's very expensive because we don't have enough of it. Um, so we want to make sure we have good housing policy in place. We don't want developers to be able to do whatever they want. Um, but someone has to build it, and it's going to be either a for-profit developer or it's going to be a non-profit developer for low-income people, and that's what it's about. Scott, uh, thank you for speaking here today. Thank you for speaking uh, yesterday at Golden Gate University, where I work, and thank you for your work on this uh, issue. Um, I guess I had I had two questions. Um, I was curious on your comment on the like the coalition that's, that could come together to support this bill. Um, you know, having more housing, it strikes me as something that people won't realize the benefit of until it's it's here. And, you know, it's easy to oppose projects and change, but I'm just curious as to what the coalition might look huh. like that would be for it. And, and uh, just also wondering if there's any cities, you know, we've heard about the ones that are really fighting hard, but are, are there any that have really embraced, mm -hmm. uh, particularly like, large projects that could house, you know, a lot of working class people. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the point about um, people seeing the benefits. And one of the reasons why housing policy is really hard is because there's a big incentive in politics to do things where you deliver the result tomorrow or in a year and people are happy with you and 
parade you around and sing your praises. Um, housing, it's like when you say to people, okay, I know you're pissed off that there's all this development happening and it's causing traffic impacts and all that, but trust me, if we just do this for like five, 10 years, 15 years, it's gonna, everything's gonna be a lot better. And, and what pe you know, people tell you to go scratch. You know, people who are, especially people who are struggling with housing today, they're struggling right now. Their kid is struggling with housing right now. Uh, and they don't want to hear, don't worry, in five, 10 years, it's going to be better. And that's why we, there are short-term benefits to building more housing. Uh, and also, we have to stabilize people in the housing that they, uh, uh, that they have. Um, but it, it, it makes it challenging, especially when people say, well, they built that condo project down the street from me, and things are still expensive. And, and so it, it's just it, it's, it's a challenging political dynamic. Um, in terms of coalition, we are seeing the evolution of a uh, very broad-based, uh, diverse uh, pro-housing coalition. So if you, and if you want to see it, look at the endorsement list for SB50. It's actually extraordinary. This is one of the only bills I've ever seen. It's so rare where we have the California Labor Federation, which is a statewide umbrella for, for I think all, pretty much all labor unions in the state of California, the California Labor Federation and the California Chamber of Commerce, both supporting the bill. We have very strong labor uh, support, very strong environmental support. Almost all of the large uh, um, environmental organizations like the League of Conservation Voters and NRDC and Environment California are supporting the bill. Very strong affordable housing so, uh, support. I mentioned Habitat for Humanity, um, as well as the Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California. Uh, we have strong support from, stu from students. We have the UC Students Association supporting it, as well as AARP uh, is uh, supporting uh, the bill. So it's a, it's a really great uh, coalition, and, and I think that uh, we are going to see that coalition doing some good work um, uh, going forward. And I forget the third thing that you asked. Just if there's any, are, are there any municipalities? Oh yes, there are, yeah. there are. And sometimes people demonize local governments, um, and, and, you know, saying, oh, it's all the city's faults and these city, these NIMBY city council members. And I think over, I know so many city council members around the state that are, they want to do the right thing. They want more housing. They are, they'll sometimes be quietly supportive of the work we're doing, but they can't say it publicly. Um, there are cities uh, that are um, either formally or informally supporting SB50. Uh, city, the city council in Emeryville unanimously voted to support it. Uh, East Palo Alto has not officially endorsed it, but their city council has made clear that they're favorable towards the bill. And let's look at that dynamic. Palo Alto is one of the leading, leading opponents to the bill. And East Palo Alto, the one that, you know, you're not allowed to be part of Palo Alto and we're actually gonna put you in a different county, right? If you look at that, really, the way East Palo Alto has been treated, so much poverty and challenges where you have wealthy Palo Alto right next door. East Palo Alto, like, they, they get it. They understand the benefits of doing this and, and of requiring other communities to participate. Uh, and we have a number, we have a whole list of individual city council members, county supervisors, mayors. We have uh, Mayor Breed in San Francisco supports it. Mayor Schaaf of Oakland supports it. Mayor Michael Tubbs of Stockton supports it. Mayor Steinberg of Sacramento. Mayor Licardo in San Jose. Um, Mayor Garcetti in LA has not endorsed it, but has made positive statements about it. Uh, so, you know, there, and then there are cities that are doing great work internally. Redwood City is one, Emeryville uh, is one. Um, LA has started to do more in parts of the city. Um, and San Francisco has done good things in parts of the city. But in most of San Francisco and LA, you can't build anything other than a single family home. Is there another question from the audience? Right here. Well, uh, as you get towards the end of your discussion, I'd just like to ask you uh, what you see as the way forward. What's your prognosis about the steps? What's going to take to make it happen? Yeah. Then after the bill happens, what's it going to take to make it happen? Yeah, well, we're, things are, this is a hard bill, and, it's, and the, the California legislative process, even for simple, like, non-controversial bills, is a fraught process. You can stumble and your bill can die or be mangled up at any moment. But we've been, last year when I did a different version of this bill, we didn't make it out of its first committee. It went through a, a 
intense 90 days and then hit a wall and never got out of a single committee. Uh, this year, we got out of the Senate. It's passed by two committees so far. The, the Senate Housing Committee passed at nine to one. Uh, and and on earlier this week, the Senate Governance and Finance Committee passed at six to one, both bipartisan votes. And, this, and the most recent uh, committee is chaired uh, by my colleague, Senator Mike McGuire, who represents Marin County, north to the Oregon border. Uh, it is not always the most voraciously pro-housing, pro-growth district. And so it's a, you know, you have Marin County there, where, which has a reputation. Um, although the, there are a lot of people in Marin County, frankly, who are pro-housing, but it's a tough political environment. And so a lot of people thought going to that committee, I was going to hit a buzzsaw. There was no way I could get past that committee. And Senator McGuire, to his credit, he, you know, he's conscious and sensitive to the communities he represents. But he gets it and understands the crisis that we're in. And so he and I worked for about six weeks intensively to negotiate. And, and we uh, came up with a bill, uh, compromise, that's still a very strong bill. Um, and he supported it. And he's coming on as a co-author. And I give him enormous credit. And that, I think, is a real uh, um, marker of the momentum we have behind the bill. There's a lot of work to do. And we have to contend with um, Los Angeles which is a very challenging political environment around housing. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we fight one day at a time. I have to ask, what uh, support or not are you getting from Governor Gavin Newsom? Um, Governor Newsom, uh, I'm, it's a really positive thing. You know, Governor Brown, uh, I didn't agree with him on everything on housing. He was not, um, he was not very supportive of um, strong tenant protections or um, financial investments in affordable housing, but on other housing issues, he was, um, I thought, very good. But it was never his one of his top priorities. Yeah. He just, and he has a little bit of a defeatist attitude. He's made statements like, oh, you know, it's too big a problem to fix. And <laughs> I don't agree with him. But um, uh, Governor Newsom has made clear that this is one of his two or three top priorities. And he, we've, he has been meeting with me and other legislators and has been very vocal about desire to have a strong housing package this year. Uh, he has um, not taken a position on SB 50. He's um, sort of acknowledged that there are concerns, but also made positive statements about the bill. Uh, and so we're working with his staff, and um, our goal is to present him something that he'll be proud to sign. So as we wind down, Scott, I mean, I, I just thank you again for being here yeah. at the Commonwealth Club and for always coming on the show. And I feel super lucky that uh, the state senator responds to Michelle Miao's email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you've taught me a very valuable lesson as a voter. You know, if, uh, I think I've been public about yeah. even myself and my thoughts and being a young voter. And in today's world with social media and stuff, it's so easy to get caught up in a lot of opinions and let's just face it, even the progressive community, voter community, when you look at even the presidential candidates, we've already are stumbling into this practice of bringing each other down and, and categorizing each candidate by uh, race, by gender, by, you know, uh, alliances, oh. um, money, right, where the money is coming from. And so seeing the amount of work that you've done in the last two years and the amount of successful bills that you've passed in the two years, these bills do impact the communities that sometimes you're branded as not supportive of. Right. For example, right, some, at times you've been branded as anti-trans. Um, at times you've been branded as, you know, not for the low income or um, working class. And so my question is really just kind of how you've navigated that and 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 in it, it is it really a thick skin how has it impacted you has it changed you yeah. how did you get out of it all and and really focus on what's important which is passing the the right bills yeah it's really fascinating that in san francisco because we're all so left wing here <laughs> that we end up um segmenting ourselves and oh you're never progressive enough you know you're and and so you know we're all uh, i think we're being re we're not visual here today. Um, but if you have the, the spectrum of right to left, we're all at the way left end, but it's like, are you here or are you like one micrometer over, you know, here? 
Uh, and so in San Francisco, when I was on the board of supervisors, I was always, you know, we have the moderate camp and the progressive camp, and I was always branded as you're a moderate. Uh, and then when I was running, there were people in Sacramento who, when I won the election, were like, um, my chief of staff, who's always worked for very progressive uh, senators, came to work for me. And, and some people said to her, why are you going to work for a moderate? And she's like, are you crazy? He's not a moderate. He's lefty. And, and so lo and behold, in the legislature, I'm considered probably one of the three or four most lefty members of the legislature. And there are people who, like, when they're doing sign-on letters, will come to me and say, we really want you to sign this <laughs> because that's a signal that this is a really progressive thing if you sign it. <laughs> and, in, and I have colleagues in Southern California that they're, uh, you know, one, one of my colleagues, and uh, she rep she, a Democrat who represents suburban uh, San Diego County, very middle-of-the-road area, uh, you know, she said that her constituents, uh, you, know, you know, have referred to me as the communist-in-chief for the state of California. And so, you, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. So, like, you know, you, you mentioned the, you know, in terms of the transgender community, and I, I've been doing work for the transgender community for, you know, for decades. And when I was on the board of supervisors, you know, I essentially, I know this isn't a word we like to use anymore, but I essentially bullied the Department of Public Health to extend Healthy San Francisco uh, to gender affirming surgery, which they were not funding that. They were not providing that coverage to trans people who needed gender affirming surgery. And I, locked them in a room with me basically and said we're not leaving until we figure out how to do this and so we did it but i still got branded somehow as you're not supportive enough of the trans community and up in sacramento now i'm doing you know i have a bill this year to require that transgender people who are incarcerated have to be housed housed according to their gender identity not according to their birth assigned gender because trans women are getting housed as men in a male facility, and then they get brutalized and raped and assaulted, and then they get placed in isolation, quote unquote, for their own protection, and then get deprived of all services because they're in isolation, even though they didn't do anything wrong. And so we're saying they have to be housed according to their gender identity, unless there is a specific security concern that can be articulated. And so that that's a pretty aggressive bill. It's not just helping trans people, it's helping the most marginalized uh, and, uh, you know, members of the transgender community, people who are incarcerated, who have, you know, are often at the end of their rope. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're doing work, you know, I have a bill to, to ban uh, a gender reconstruction surgery on intersex uh, babies, babies who are born with atypical genitalia, and there's nothing medically wrong with them. They're totally healthy, but their genitals don't look the quote-unquote normal way. And so they do this quick surgery on them as a baby, which could assign them the wrong gender in addition to other problems it can cause. And my bill, which we're, the doctors are fighting us to the death on it, says you have to wait until that kid is able to express their own gender and their own desires to do that surgery. It's a pretty aggressive bill to try to respect the gender identity of these kids. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, how we interact when I come home and have some progressives say, you're a Republican. And I, I love telling, whenever someone tweets that, I, I always uh, text it to some of my Republican colleagues and they like spit out their coffee and they can't <laughs> believe it. Cause, um, but that's just politics and um, that's okay. Um, I'm just going to continue to do the, the progressive work we do in Sacramento. That's so wonderful. We're really, really lucky to have you. I think, you know, and especially during this politically challenging time and having the president that we do have. Very last question, very quickly, yeah. before we wrap up, who are you voting for president? Oh, I'm for... <laughs> yeah, that's an easy one. I'm for, I'm for Kamala Harris. I think she uh, will be fantastic. She's, you know, I've, I've worked with her and seen her work for years, and I just think she'll be an amazing nominee and an amazing president. But we're really lucky. We have such a... Uh, abundance of, of riches. I mean, I, I, you know, Elizabeth Warren never ceases to amaze me. Her, I mean, I, I, I think she's not getting the traction that some people thought she would get. But I mean, talk about someone who is one of the most substantive human beings on the face of the planet. And she gets actually, uh, I think some of the misogyny that was directed at Hillary gets directed at Elizabeth. Like, oh, you're not, 
you're not like friendly enough or you're not, you know, you're not sort of soft and touchy feely enough. You're a little too hard edged. So, um, so I'm for Kamala, but I also, uh, I also love, uh, Elizabeth and I, I, I don't know enough about, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, you know, I don't know his positions, so I can't comment on that, but I am thrilled that, uh, an LGBT person, uh, who is out is running for president in a, you know, not who's actually getting attention and being viewed as a credible candidate and, uh, getting into it with Mike Pence and all that. So we have an abundance of riches, but I am firmly for Kamala. Thank you so much, State Senator Scott Wiener. John, you have one last comment? Yes, and can we pitch someone else who also has gotten into it with Mike Pence, who will be here on Sunday? Oh, Olympic figure skater Adam Rippon will be Uh here Sunday afternoon. So if you'd like to join us for a fun afternoon of great talks, um, please join us. I think we still have a few seats left, a couple seats. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, State Senator Scott Wiener, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.